welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America Veterans Podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. With us today is U.S. Navy veteran Lindsay Church. Lindsay is a Navy veteran who served from 2008 to 2012 as a Persian Farsi linguist. In 2009, Lindsay began seeing a Navy doctor after having extreme chest pains. She was diagnosed with an inverted sternum that was crushing her heart and lungs. At that time, she began a series of operations that would result in her being placed on over 15 medications, many for post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression. After spending two years at Cyber Intelligence Command, Lindsay was medically retired from the Navy and returned home to Seattle. Upon returning home, Lindsay attended the University of Washington, where she earned a BA in Near Eastern Language and Civilization, Islamic Studies, and a Master's in International Studies with a focus in the Middle East. After grad school, Lindsay began work with veterans, helping them successfully transition to higher education and on to meaningful appointment, where she founded and co-founded the Office of Student Veteran Life at the University of Washington. Through her work, she noticed that there were many people being left out of the military veteran narrative. In 2017, Lindsay resigned her position as the commander of an American Legion post in Washington State and started the Minority Veterans of America with co-founder Catherine Pratt to ensure that there is a community of support for veterans of color, women, LGBTQ, and religious and non-religious minorities. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. You're such an incredible background, and thank you for your service. Thank you for thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. I'm excited. Absolutely. So I'd like to get started by kind of just asking you, what's your background? Like, how did you get into the Navy? I'd like to know kind of your story of like how you wound up in the Navy uh, and then your your path towards veterans advocacy. Yeah. So uh, as you said, I served in the Navy from 2008 to 2012. Um, I was about 22 years old when I joined. Um, I am the a third generation Navy veteran myself. Um, about six to seven of our family members have served. So I kind of always knew that I was meant to do something bigger than myself. Um, and so in 2008, I decided to join the Navy, despite the fact that I was going to serve under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, I served uh, all but three months of my service under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, but I loved my time in the Navy. Um, I very much enjoyed the first couple of years of my service. I was that person that very much wanted to do everything that was out there. My first year in service, I actually ended up volunteering over 400 hours um, in addition to going to language school. Um, This meant that I did pretty much anything that you could possibly throw my way, um, including PT leader. Um, So I was a PT leader for for about six months, um, doing as much as I could to support my um, division did a lot of um, regular PT, but also worked with service members who were in jeopardy or, uh, or in danger of not passing their fitness test. Over time, I started to get some pretty intense chest pains um, when I would be driving or when I was you know, working out or anything of that nature. Um, so in late 2009, I started going to a doctor um, to get this looked at. Um, and I was born with an inverted sternum. Um, when I joined, I was very healthy. I um, was a softball player long before that, um, and so I wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, and so the doctor did some a series of tests and found out that my um, my sternum was actually really a lot more inverted than it than it seemed. And so there was about three centimeters between 
the bottom of my sternum and my spine. Um, so there wasn't actually a lot of room for me to breathe. Um, one of the chambers of my heart was um, able to contract but not expand. So I was really only functioning on about three chambers in my heart. Um, and so this gave me, um, my doctor basically said, you know, like, you can continue your time in the service, we can operate on you, or you can, you know, you can take your chances and see what happens with your heart um, and lungs in the way that they are. So to me, 24 or 23, 23, 24 years old, um, it seemed like this was an easy procedure. Um, This doctor had done surgeries like this before, um, that I was going to be completely returned to duty and that my, you know, my service was going to continue. I, this wasn't actually what happened. Um, So I had my first operation in January of 2009. Um, and I, uh, it actually turned out that it was not a normal, normally this problem is a cartilage problem. Mine was actually a bone problem. So they ended up cutting three inches off of six of my ribs, um, and taking most of the pieces of my chest out. So a lot of the cartilage, um, I don't actually have any cartilage in my chest anymore. Um, and so everything that could go wrong at this point did, um, I spent, I think five days in the ICU, um, my, I was, my liver was enlarged from too much Tylenol. Um, my, I actually ended up having a pleural effusion and my lung collapsed. Um, so at about 15 days in, I was supposed to be out of the hospital in five and I was 15 days in and my lung collapsed. Um, so I ended up spending 30 days in the hospital. Um, and then I was able to return home. Um, at that point I was, when I went into surgery, I was literally on one medication Um, by about a year and a half into my service, I was on 16 medications, um, many of them, including painkillers, um, antidepressants, anti-anxieties, and a whole host of other drugs to basically, basically combat what was going on as side effects of all these other medications. Um, and so my journey got pretty complicated at that point. Um, but at that point I was actually able to return home to, um, to do two months of convalescent leave. Um, while I was home, somebody got really excited to see me and it picked, picked me up and hugged me and it snapped and fractured my sternum. Um, so I ended up on a path of, that would eventually result in seven surgeries plus, you know, more that are coming my way in the next few years. And so it really just turned me on a path of being, you know, like medically um, disabled, not fit for duty, um, but returning home to language school to finish out my next few months on quite a host of painkillers. Wow. It, it sounds like the, it was a, a mess coming, coming to the point where you went home to visit family. And then the, it, it, do you almost think it may be a blessing that the hug happened? Because if it had not been for that, maybe this, you'd have been discharged and you wouldn't have gotten the treatment that maybe you needed or, or, um, hey, I, or hey, that was just a bad I, event. That shouldn't have happened. And that was terrible. There, there was a possibility before all that happened that I actually would have been able to recover despite the fact that it, you know, some things have gone wrong in the hospital, but I do think that that hug actually ended up being the reason why I've had six surgeries since that first surgery. So with a path that it puts you on, it puts you back in the hospital, back on the cocktail and was almost the hug, right. of, death, was almost the hug of death, almost. It, it was. Um, at that oh. point, um, I, I ended up back in the hospital. Um, that's where I ended up home for so much longer than I expected to be. Um, but when I graduated language school, which I have no idea how I passed language school, to be completely honest, but I did. And so I returned to language school. I completed. Um, but before I could actually transfer from um, my language my language school to the next duty station, which was supposed to be 
um, Augusta, Georgia, I had to go back and see my doctor again. And so my doctor saw me at that point and found out um, that my, so I had been struggling at this point to get any doctor to believe me that something was wrong with my chest. I had gone to doctors in Monterey, I had gone to doctors in Seattle, and I hadn't returned to San Diego yet. Um, and none of them had noticed one that my sternum wasn't attached to anything. So normally you have a union between your sternum and your maneuver, which is a bone that is um, above your sternum and kind of holds things together. Nobody caught that there was a hairline fracture in my sternum and that my sternum wasn't attached to anything until I went back to San Diego. And so the doctor there was like, yeah, your sternum is not actually attached to anything. So the reason why you're in pain is that sometimes your sternum's in the right place and sometimes it's not. Um, and so what he ended up doing was trying to put a plate over my sternum to hold it together. Um, and so this plate was made out of skull bond. So the stuff that you normally see people that have brain surgeries or any kind, uh, any type of uh, like skull surgeries, um, they made a plate out of skull bond. So it was supposed to dissolve over 18 months. And so this would have been enough to be able to basically hold my sternum in place. What ended up happening was my sternum twisted and was like jammed up against the ribs that they had cut. So this procedure that was supposed to help me and get me back to where I was supposed to be before this, uh, before the hug happened actually ended up causing more problems. Um, and so I was hospitalized after that surgery for 12 days. And then instead of being able to go to Georgia, I was stuck at Naval Medical Center San Diego um, for 12 days in the hospital. And then I spent six months living at the medical barracks there. And so I spent my those six months living with the warriors who had just returned um, or who were going through intense medical treatment, um, which was probably hell on earth. Mm. It was the worst place I've ever lived in my entire life. Um, and that was nearly the end for me. Wow. So it sounds like medical, med- the, the medical treatment that you received was just setting you up for more and more failure along the way. A hundred percent. It was not always the medical treatment that was the worst, um, despite the fact that I was on more medications that I I actually don't know how I'm still alive. When I look back at my records, now I see all of the medications I was on and I honestly don't know how I was even breathing. Hmm. Um, I mean, between painkillers, muscle relaxers, sleep medications, anti-anxieties, antidepressants, and then, you know, stuff to make it so I wasn't nauseous or stuff to make it so that I could, you know, like my stomach would actually move because everything was just rock solid. Like it was one thing after the other. And I actually have no clue like how I was even functional in any way, shape or form or that like literally that I'm alive. Um, and so like the, that, you know, living in the medical barracks, like you would think this would be a supportive place for people with injury, but we have such a bad culture in the military of like, if you're not fit for full duty, you are malingering. People thought that I was malingering when sure. I still had literally still had stitches in my chest that had been opened like a, a wishbone. Um, and like I, at the time had transferred to the medical barracks, but I was an E5 within a year. Um, and so when you're an E5 within a year, people look at you like you don't deserve your rank. Like you didn't do anything to earn it. Now you're hurt. And so you're not actually contributing to the military. And so what I ended up ha- what ended up happening to me was that I had corpsmen that literally like tormented me. They would do special inspections in my room. They would um, send me to special duty like for the day where I would be operating, you know, like the irons for pressing on um, the decals onto scrubs, like stuff that I should not have been doing when I was on as many medications as I was. But it was it became psychological torture, and so this all uh, kind of 
you know, it ended up coming to a head one night um, in about January or February 2010. Um, I had had a really bad run-in with um, with the corpsman. I had had a um, point at which the doctors I was seeing were no longer going to see me because they didn't think that my injuries were enough. Um, I was transitioning between, at the time, I looked back at my medical records, I was transitioning back and forth between Valium and Clonopin for anti-anxiety almost every month. Mm. Um, and in, like at the time, I was also transitioning between Zoloft and Effector um, and never having a consistent medical health professional or a mental health professional that could actually support me through these transitions. Um, and so one night after a really bad run-in with the corpsman and everything going on, um, I didn't think I was going to make it. I couldn't see any path forward. Um, I honestly, in that moment, I honestly thought this would never get better and that I was, my life was never going to change. It was only ever going to get worse. So, um, I lived in the fifth floor, um, and I opened my window and I sat below it sobbing. Um, and I was ready to jump and just end it there because nothing was ever going to be better. Like this is always going to be my reality. Um, and so I nearly took my life that night. Wow. I'm, I'm so sorry for that experience, but thank you for sharing that because from my talks with other, other folks uh, who, who have been in similar situations and then having hard life events going on, but also been unsafely being, being transmissioned between psychiatric drugs, th- this is a very common story that, that I keep hearing. Yeah. You mentioned you're on, you're going back and forth between benzos and antidepressants. Um, you mentioned Zoloft and Effexor. What was going on at that time? Have you gone through your medical records and seen since, like what what medication had been switched or what you'd been put on or what you'd been taken off of right at that time? Yeah, that was actually, um, I was in the process of being transitioned from Zoloft to Effexor. Um and I was in the process of being switched back and forth between Valium and Clonopin. Um, so in, I think it was in January, I was on Valium. In February, I was on Clonopin. And uh, nope, sorry, February, I was back on Valium. Eight by April, I was on Clonopin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just switching back and forth and switched back and forth. So there was never a consistent like stream of anything. Um, and there was definitely not, an, like I was also being transitioned between therapists. Um, and so at the point at that time, like I was begging for somebody to, to do psychology and not psychiatry on me, but psychiatry was all they were offering. Um, and so I, it took a long time before I actually had a psycho a psychiatrist that would also do therapy with me, um, and not just throw medication at me, like it was going to help. So, so talk to them more about that. Like what, what that experience is like going back and forth between the medications, also not being able to get access to the counseling that sounded like you were requesting and needed where did this path, like how long did this go on for? I was losing my mind. Like yeah. I, I was losing my mind in all of it. Like I still think back to some of the, you know, like my case manager who used to just probably think I was crazy. Um, because every time that we would transition from one to the other, I'd be like, this isn't working. Or I, you know, like I would go in these major swings between, um, one day I would be not be able to sleep for days on end. And the next day I would be asleep for days on end. And just, you know, these major swings in, in all of your mannerisms, in your behavior, like I was erratic 
I couldn't keep relationships. I couldn't keep people in my life. Like, thank God for my mom, um, because she's pretty much the only one that I think could handle all of the stuff that I was like throwing at her, like on a regular basis. I pushed every single person that I knew out of my life because I couldn't keep it together. Um, like it just, I felt crazy all the time. Um, but I also like with all of these medications, like I still wasn't getting the relief, you know, like I was still living in nine out of 10 pain every single day and it never stopped. Like I was losing my mind. How how long did this go on for? How long were you in the Navy? How long did they keep you on this cocktail for? And did this continue when you got out? So I was in, I was in until 2012. Um, I think in late 2010, I finally said enough is enough. Like I can't take these antidepressants anymore. Like I feel numb. I barely feel anything. I'm not connected to anybody. I, this is not helping. This is only making things worse and I won't take these anymore. I remember drawing a line in the sand with my psychologist, um, or sorry, my psychiatrist and saying like, I can't go on one more of these drugs. Like, this is the last one that I'll try. And if it doesn't work, I'm not taking any more of your drugs. And I mean, he was supportive in in the fact that he was not going to continue to make me take these, but he also transitioned duty stations in the middle of all that. So I was still like stuck in a lurch, like trying to figure out who was actually going to support me. Um, But by late 2010, I had come off of at least the um, antidepressants and stayed on the anti-anxieties. I think I was on the anti-anxieties until about 2012. Um, when I got out, um, at the time it was still like the only ones that ever went away, um, for the first five years or so were just the antidepressants, everything else I was still on. Um, when I got out, I was like, man, I look back at pictures of myself in 2012 and I just don't recognize myself. And so I came off of painkillers. I've come off of them a couple of times, but then, um, when I was in service, uh, at about 2011, um, I came off of, um, I was on a cocktail of fentanyl patches. I at times had uh, Oxycontin for breakthrough and Oxycodone for breakthrough. Um, But my main cocktail was uh, fentanyl patch with Oxycodone for breakthrough. And so in in late 2011, I came off of those um, and never went back to taking painkillers in that, in those doses. Um, the only painkillers I've taken since then um, had more to do with surgery recovery. But now I honestly will not go on any medication. Um, my doctors and I, my doctor the other day looked at me and said, I honestly have no idea how you're not on, on morphine medication. And I looked at her and I said, because I'm not taking your medication. That, that sounds like a pretty appropriate response considering. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, like I told them, um, I tell my doctors now. I'll do anything to not take painkillers and I'll do anything to not take antidepressants and anti-anxiety. Like I'd rather fix the actual problem and rather than deal with it through being overprescribed um, a million medications. Like, like I said, I, I still, I think a lot about how I don't know how I'm not dead. Do you feel anger or what, like looking back at that period, is that like, what is your thought when you're looking at the list of medications that you're on? What's your reaction looking at your medical records today? I think our conversations, yours and I, is about, um, I mean, when you, when you and I first started talking about this, it was arbitrary in the sense of like this, you know, like this isn't me, you know, like I was only on these for a little bit. And then when we started talking about like, you should look at your medical records and, and see if at the time that you almost took your life, like if you 
or being bounced back back and forth between any medications. And I, it hurts to look back and actually see like, this was me too. So there's a part of me that's angry. There's a part of me that's sad. And there's a part of me, honestly, that's so, so damn tired of all of this. Like, I know I'm not the only one. And I know that there are, you know, thousands of me, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of me that have, you know, that are 34 years old and own five boxes of their medical records and they went in healthy. It's not, the story is not uncommon. And that makes me really sad, like for our community, because if this is my story, like how many other stories like mine are there? Well, the reality is it's unfortunately not that uncommon. The the reality is, is that the data has been showing that this is the story that is we're looking at the suicide epidemic, that there is an increase of 10%, went from 49% prescription rates of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and SNRIs, selective uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, uh, between 99 and 2009. And uh, it went from 49% prescription rates to 59% prescription rates. And it was during that time, that tail end of that, that decade, that suicide rates for 18 to 34-year-olds who use the VA uh, started a rapidly increase. And uh, it was during that time that the suicide rates for veterans outside of the VA, which historically had been higher, had actually flipped. And the suicide rates actually, uh, around 2009, 2010, actually became higher for veterans who use the VA which is counterintuitive. You'd think if you're going to get help, you're doing better. But it looks like there's some really significant connections between these medications, your story, my story, and the story of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of others, that this is what's going on. Like We we don't need to look a whole lot further here. Um, And that the the evidence-based therapies that, that have been touted as the the model of how we need to be providing care may actually be causing harm. And from our conversations and and everything you're sharing with us today, it it sure sounds like it. Well, I mean, it's not surprising when like, I, I mean, myself, I am a user of the VA and it's far easier to get into psychiatry than it is to get into prolonged psychology, which to be honest, like the only thing that I want is prolonged psychology to be able to unpack everything that I just shared. But the reality is that I got a call last Thursday that said, hey, are you ready to schedule your mental health appointment? And it's November 26th. When they called, it was October 3rd. November 26th is when I get to see uh, somebody who can take my case in more of a prolonged basis. What did it take to get there? Like, Was it that you called and said, hey, I'd like to get an appointment set up? Uh, or was it, did you have to negotiate with psychiatry? What was that experience? No, I had to go, I had to get bounced from my primary care who sent me to what I thought was going to be mental health, but was actually just a mental health intake at a different primary care clinic. Um, that, that MSW is going to be able to support me um, for, a, you know, they have a, in primary care, they have a, the ability to give you, I think, six sessions. But she also, you know, from hearing my story was like, yeah, you're probably going to need more than six sessions. So I have to work with somebody that I already know isn't going to be my therapist um, while I wait for care. 
Um, and so it's just a process of being passed around. But I bet you, if I wanted them, I could easily get access to antidepressants instead. We want to throw a pill at these things. Like we want to throw a pill at everything. And I, that's exactly what my medical records say. Like I look at my medical records that say every one of these medications in the top part of this cause nausea. And now I have to take a medication to take uh, take a medication for nausea to be able to cure the nausea that all of the rest of these medications are are causing. Um, you know, like I have to take a, a muscle relaxer because of everything else that's going on. I have to put lidocaine ointment. It's like, and then take multivitamins because my my vitamin levels are being depleted. And it's like one thing after the other, we're going to throw a pill at it rather than actually deal with what's going on. So we got you to the point where you are off the antidepressants. You are still in the Navy. You're still in the anti-anxiety meds, the benzodiazepines. And now you're coming to the transition point in 2012. Yeah. So tell, tell me about that. Your transition out and did you transition out of active duty into uh, private sector care or the VA care? And like what happened to your medications? Did you keep getting prescribed or did you just come off of it? No, I stopped taking, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take them. Um, so I left in 2012, went back to Seattle. Um, I lived with my mom for about a year and honestly, thank God my mom is a veteran because she was able to help me get figured out the VA. Um, otherwise I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to figure it out myself. I was able to get into care there. Um, I came off of, I think, everything at the time besides uh, painkillers um, because I was still in, I I had had, in 2011, I had had a medal where I had been sent out of, um, out of active duty care and into UCLA where they basically told me, like, he, he looked at me and said, everything that they did is, uh, basically useless and I'm going to take all of it out and I'm going to restart. And so he ended up doing a surgery that was, ended up putting a nine and a half inch metal rod in my chest. Um, and so I was in so much pain and didn't get that rod out until I think 2012. So I was still living with this metal rod in my chest, trying to function, going to school. Um, and so I was being seen at the VA and I came off of everything besides the, um, I think I was still taking some muscle relaxers and the painkillers. Um, but I wouldn't take anything else. Like the way that the, the, the system was set up, like, yes, you can get access to antidepressants. I wouldn't take them. Um, I stayed with um, a mental health professional for a bit at the VA. Um, but the psychiatry, they, you know, kept trying to give me medications that I basically would say, cool. They would send them to me and I would throw them away. Um, and so I stopped going anywhere near psychiatry, went to the mental health professional that was in the women's clinic. Um, and then after a while, just stopped going um, because it wasn't, nothing was helping. I was completely disconnected from everything, still really struggling with everything that had happened. My post-traumatic stress was so bad that I couldn't even ride a bus to school. Like I was melting down, but I didn't have support. I was, again, one of those moments in my life when I don't actually know how I survived it um, because the level of isolation that happened at that point was, it's remarkable that I'm, you know, like even you and I are talking today. Um, I went back to school and I really struggled for the first couple of years that I was there because I wouldn't talk to anybody. I would sit in the back of the classroom. I, my, my, I was having triggers and trauma flashbacks like every time I would go to a class and really struggling with depression and my anxiety level was so high. Um, 
And thank goodness I made it through that and ended up going to grad school um, and working with student veterans at the time, um, helping to, you know, start the office of student veteran life. Um, And then, you know, the rest is history. Well, it it sounds pretty incredible that you're, that you've been through that everything you've been through and you're still here, but also that you're doing everything that you're doing for the veterans community now. Maybe you could tell us more about what you're doing now, uh, what the the goal of Minority Veterans of America is, uh, what the impetus for that was, and maybe how you think what you're doing today can impact others who might be going through what you were going through yesterday. Um, yeah, so um, in 2017, um, I was the commander in American Legion post, and um, I had kind of had I had been that I'd been in that role for almost two years, and I was really struggling with um, all of the racism and misogyny and homophobia that was really pervasive in the in that organization for me, um, or at least in my experience, um, and so. At that point, I resigned my position and worked with one of my good friends who is a Korean-American woman veteran. Um, and through our shared experiences, we realized that there, I will never understand what it feels like to live as a person of color in this country. And she will never understand what it, what it feels like to live as a gender non-conforming person in this world. Um, but when you take the two of us, we can't understand the lived experience, but we can definitely understand what it feels like to be marginalized and alienated and pushed out of a community. And so through that, we, you know, kind of looked at this community solidarity model is that minorities make up a far greater majority than people really think of. But usually when people think of veterans, they usually think of a straight white Christian male. And there are plenty of folks that fit that fit that demographic, but there are so many that don't. And oftentimes our, our stories are silenced or we're pushed to the margins, which you're seeing the rise of, you know, like women veterans are 2.2 times as likely um, to die by suicide than their civilian counterparts. LGBTQ veterans, I believe, are two, two times as likely to die than die by suicide than their, um, than their civilian counterparts. Um, and so these, you know, like these minority communities are being disproportionately impacted by all of the epidemics that you see in the veteran community. But oftentimes those needs aren't being met because of the solutions that are being created or not don't have them in mind. And so my work today works with people of color, women, LGBTQ and religious and non-religious minorities to say that alone, we're easy to stop out. It's easy for you to silence us. But together, we make up a larger portion of this community than anybody believes. And now it's time for us to have our needs met. Um, And it's time for us to belong. Many of us have been disenfranchised in the veteran community. And really that it's not by choice. It's by, it's by necessity. Um, And so our goal is to bring people into a supportive community to break that isolation because isolation is a killer. Um, and so for me, my biggest, um, I'm a community organizer. I love bringing people in, getting down on the you know, ground and bringing folks in, you know, like one by one um, and really just allowing them the space to be able to be themselves and to show up fully and be a veteran at the same time. And for me, like, I think about who I was yesterday and I think about who I was when I got out and like what I was struggling with. And most of it had to do with not feeling like I belonged anywhere. And so my work now is trying to reach the me five years ago when I didn't think that I belonged or that it didn't think that my story was, was unique or even worth being or worthy of being told. Um, and I didn't think that there were others out there that shared some of these experiences, but there are. Um, and my goal is to make sure that every minority veteran knows that 
and then to address the equity gaps that are, you know, like making it so that we have, we are impacted by all of these epidemics at a disproportionate rate. So yeah. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing. I mean, I I I don't know what it's like to have your experience. Uh, I know what it is like being a younger veteran in the veteran service organization community and not always being immediately accepted or understood. But with that said, I'm also a six foot tall white male that uh, has a pretty strong voice and carries myself uh, in a way that doesn't really get pushed too easily. And even still, it can be a challenge navigating a veterans community that, that is currently um, uh, heavily dominated by the, the previous generations of warfighters. And so I, I think it's yeah. admirable. I have to commend you for everything that you're doing. And I want you to know that you have an ally in me um, as, you're, as you're going forward on, on everything that you're working on. I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I, I just can't commend you enough for everything that you're doing, everything, and all the fighting that you're, you're doing for this community. So, Thank you. I do it because I love it and because I honestly just love our community. Um, and I know that we're capable of so much and that we have a lot of areas of opportunity here to grow. Um, and I truly believe that there is a future here for everybody to be able to actually be, you know, one community at some point where we all feel like we can show up fully. Can you talk more about the, you, you cited some data related to suicide rates. Um, we've talked about uh, psychiatric medications. Could you talk more about the, the what you know of uh, prescriptions for uh, these types of drugs and disproportionate maybe diagnosing for folks of the LGBTQ community um, and how you might think that these diagnoses and ultimately their the treatments of psychiatric drugs could be possibly disproportionately harming this community? Yeah, um, I think you and I have talked a lot about um, the fact that there's very little research out there when it comes to um, the use of these drugs in any of our communities. Um, so, my what you know, like what limited knowledge there is out there, it does say like that LGBTQ vets have a higher rate of suicide, of post-traumatic stress, depression, and alcohol abuse. Um, trans vets are one of the highest rate has one of the highest rates of ideation and attempts. Um, and, uh, you really kind of see this when you look at, um, serving in isolation. Um, so our community, when you think about like how many folks had to serve and, you know, leave their identity at home because of don't ask, don't tell. And because of the trans, trans military ban, when you look at those things, it doesn't, it's not surprising that we have higher rates of post-traumatic stress, depression, and alcohol use. Um, and so we, you know, like our, our community is disproportionately impacted by suicide. Um, when you look at the general military population and when you look at their civilian counterparts. Um, and so what needs to happen at this point is that linkage between the prescription rates and the suicide epidemic. Um, and so I think there's a huge knowledge gap when it comes to what's happening as far as Yes, we know that these communities are experiencing higher instances of post-traumatic stress and depression. What are you doing to treat that? Um, so what needs to happen is somebody needs to actually start diving into what are the, what are the, um, what are, what are the treatment plans of these folks beyond just knowing that they have higher rates of post-traumatic stress and depression. We need to actually see what the outcomes are so that we can actually draw these, link, these linkages. So I guess what would your, your path forward be then? Because you're, 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 you are leading Minority Veterans of America 
to, to help ad- advocate for uh, this community, but also to educate the country on these unique needs. But what does what does the organization do uh, as far as is it a social support organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, the organization itself is working to bring folks into community. So. Um, we know that the largest, like the, the easiest way for folks to come into the community is through social engagement. And when we talk about isolation, this is the only way to break it. Um, and so I think the, the path forward is to advocate and ask our, you know, representatives to advocate for research to be done into what we just talked about, about what's, what are the treatment plans of the folks that we know to already have higher instances of post-traumatic stress, depression, and alcohol abuse, um, you know, asking our officials, but can you advocate for research? Can you start actually looking at this problem and looking at the linkages? On the flip side, the organizations that are supporting them are, you know, our organization focuses on social engagement um, to bring folks into community. So social engagement, um, working on getting them access to systems. So like being able to make it easier to get uh, your disability benefits, uh, get you access to your GI bill, and then to work on um, financial stability, knowing that you can't do much without financial stability. But that social engagement piece is the very first line of like defense when it comes to any of our organizations. So we're really out there trying to build um, both digitally and we have three cities um, standing up right now. So we have Seattle, Richmond, Virginia, and Atlanta um, standing up uh, minority-backed communities and we'll be you know, only expanding over the next few years. That's awesome. So the, the communities, what does that look like? Like, uh, do you have meetings? Do you have events? So we do events um, and we do, so in, we have a program called People to People, which is a whole bunch of veterans out there bringing veterans into community. Um, so we believe that uh, representation matters. And so our organization is run almost entirely by veterans or veteran family members. Um, and so we go out into the community, we host events, we table, um, we go to meet veterans where they are um, in what would be normally your unconventional means. Um, all to try to bring them into what we, you know, like our system um, of support. So social engagement being one major one, which is events, um, events and um, different types of, yeah, mostly predominantly events, but social engagement pieces. So we do things like community coffees, camping trips, um, outdoor event, outdoor programming. You know, our one of our solutions for, um, you know, instead of using antidepressants, why don't we get outdoors instead? Um, and so looking at how can we introduce alternative ways of healing to be able to work on some of the things that we're talking about rather than um, turning to antidepressants and towards, you know, some some of the things that have, or, you know, like even t- turning towards alcohol because our community tends to organize around bars. Um, so our, our goal is to set up unconventional ways of bringing people in and meeting them where they are. So if, if, you're, if you're a veteran out there that would like to get involved, like how would they do that? Uh, you can go to minorityvets.org, um, check out our website. If you're interested in getting involved, we have a tab. You can go to minorityvets.org slash lead. Um, and all of our volunteer positions are out there. Um, we love volunteers. You can do it from anywhere. It doesn't have to be in any of our cities. You can actually do it virtually. Um, you can also show up to one of our events. Uh, you can follow us on social. Um, we have a we have a social uh, site for all of our different cities as well as the entire organization um, we also do a lot of storytelling, so we're relaunching um, our platform Stories of Us here soon to do more storytelling and get you know break that narrative apart and really start to make sure that we're included. And so you're a nonprofit. We are. So is there any way, anyone, any, any other way people can support you? 
you can always give. Um, we have a donation site set up on our website. We also have um, merchandise that you can find on our site as well. So if you're looking for some Minority Vets gear, you can always find that online. Um, all of that goes to supporting the growth of the organization. Awesome. Well, um, I, I'm going to bring it back real fast. So we were talking, uh, most of the conversation has been around uh, antidepressants and benzodiazepines. Right now, there is a piece of legislation uh, being considered in the House that uh, would move the requirement from oral informed consent uh, to signatory informed consent. Because currently, to be prescribed psychotropic or psychoactive drugs, there's no signatory requirement like you would have with the procedure where the doctor has to walk you through and explain all of the risks associated with these medications. Do you feel that, that had you had more information that you might not have had that attempt because you might not have been on the, these medications that put you in that situation or that, that risk profile? Or was I that think not- for myself, I, I trusted them so much um, that I believed that they were telling me what they were telling me was true and that anything that they were giving me was going to help me. Um, and so I think for me, it would actually probably have been more beneficial to have my medical power of attorney looking over that paperwork and actually making some of the decisions that I was making for myself at the time. Um, so I think informed consent is really important, but I also think that knowing the, the place that the person that you're at, like the meeting them where they're at and recognizing this person isn't in their right mind to make any decisions that should, that the medical power of attorney should at that point be engaged. Um, so for myself, like I really wish that, that my mom had been involved in some of these, despite the fact that I was only 24 years old and making some of those decisions, but they don't, you know, like when you think about surgeries and things like that, your medical power of attorney is, you know, like standing by, but when you're looking at the aftercare and when you're looking at antidepressants and things like that, that are used after long after your surgeries, like they're not engaging my medical power of attorney. They're asking me questions and knowing full well that I am not, if you, if you had subpoenaed me in court at that point, I don't think I would have been able to pass even just the basic baseline like mental health assessment. And yet I was making major decisions that could potentially impact whether or not I lived or died. You, you, start, you hit on something really important that resonates with a lot of our listeners, which is the family's not being involved. And yeah. the individual going through and trying to navigate survival and that's at that mm-hmm. point, at this point, this is what it is. When you're on multiple psychiatric drugs, my case is example, I was on six drugs. I had no right making decisions about my health at that. Like I, I, I was not, I had the right, but I didn't have the competence. I, I was, right. I, I couldn't maintain a job at that point. So at that point, that's where family should have been involved and family should have been engaged. So, someone else to serve as a sounding board, but they're not. I know like major decisions were generally like involved family. And when I think about like what I was talking with my mom about, like I was melting down almost every single day. And my mom knew that my, um, my counselor knew that my um, case manager knew that like, if you look at the notes, like they, you know, like they, they didn't think I was in a good place and they didn't think that I was mentally like sound at the time. So why was I making these decisions? Like I, I couldn't, like, I don't even know how I was breathing, let alone, like, having any type of cognitive functioning to be able to make these huge life decisions. 
And if they knew, you know, like that there were so many things going on with these medications, they should damn well be telling somebody that actually can process that information and make an informed decision. But I couldn't make an informed decision about when I was going to bed. I mean, I, I think it's important that, that people retain the right to make decisions related to their care. But to your yeah. point, uh, because I mean, when, when we start talking about this, it's a, it's a very delicate line to balance to make sure that the patient is informed, the patient has support in making sound decisions, but also that patients' rights are not violated. Absolutely. So it's kind of a dangerous path, but uh, to yeah. your point, I think like you're nailing it right on the head and that, that, that family needs to be involved, uh, friends need to be involved. Well, your support system, they're the ones that are supporting you through everything else. Like they're the ones that have to deal with you 23 hours, you know, 23 hours a day, let alone like they're the ones that are the ones that have to support you like and know what's going on with you. But if they knew with the antidepressants that there's an increased risk of suicide, I didn't tell anybody that I nearly took my own life until like a year or two later, you know, like. I was suicidal. I was exhibiting every single risk factor that they would talk about, but I was so afraid of losing my security clearance that I wouldn't tell anybody. Right. And it's absolutely, you're right that you have to retain, there has to be a balance between the two, you know, like between maintaining your ability to keep your rights and, you know, like not violating them, but also making sure that you're well enough to make some of the decisions that you are like, my counselor has plenty of notes and there's plenty of notes in my medical records about the things that were going on. And honestly, like I I'm really glad that I was never inpatient, but like if I almost jumped out a fifth floor window, do you think that I should have been staying in that fifth floor like room? Probably not. No, it looks like it was giving you the opportunity to do something that, that, that no, no, none of us wanted you to do. That's what it sounds like. hundred percent. We were not well and nobody was paying attention. Um, and it was, these things were pervasive across the barracks that lived on hospital grounds. Like none of us should have had windows that even opened. Like I should not have even been able to think about putting myself out a window because honestly, like when I was in that state, like I don't, like you should have had a window that was only able to be cracked three inches, like not a window that opens completely. Uh, sure. Uh, do you believe you would have nearly attempted taking your life had you not been on those medications? Honestly, I don't know. I, I don't, I honestly went through so much that it's really hard sometimes to parse out what was like, what was the worst, you know, like, was it the surgeries that I'd gone through? Was it the pain? Was it that I was on 16 medications at 24 years old? Was it the cocktail of things that they were giving me? Was it the lack of emotional support that was happening? Like there were so many things that were largely the results of negligence in one way or another, that it's really sometimes hard to parse out like what was the worst, you know, mm-hmm. what was the worst thing that they did to you? And so, you know, like the, it doesn't help that I was being bounced between, you know, psych med and psych med. Like I know that that wasn't helping anything. There's no way like bouncing back and forth between clonopin and, and Valium every single month or every two months is healthy for anyone it's sometimes really hard to figure out what thing happened in the military that was the worst or was the largest contributing factor because honestly, like the negligence that happened as a, you know, like as I was serving, there was so much. I think negligence is a, is a, a key word here too. Not, not, yeah. not, not the drugs alone, but the, 
the the lack of oversight and it, not not at this mm-hmm. psychiatrist level alone, but this goes all the way up the chain of command. It, yeah, the DoD and at the VA, it doesn't just stop at the facility director. Like these pro these policies are set by VA nationally and by Congress, and so it doesn't even stop actually mm-hmm. at the, the top of the VA. It doesn't even end at the VA secretary. This goes to Congress for allowing this to continue. Somebody needs to have oversight and everybody keeps passing the buck on who that should be. You know, like you're right. It's not the individual therapist because the individual therapist is going at the best that they can with what they're given. Like I know there were, there were plenty of doctors that bounced me, bounced me from person to person to person. But there, I think about the one doctor that I had for more than a few months and he was great. Like he was working with everything that he could and he was trying really hard. But when you're when you're told your job is not necessarily to care for these people, but to get them back to full duty, there's a very different mindset in that. And that makes sense why we ended up almost, you know, like that so many of us ended up on antidepressants because it's the fastest way, if it works, to getting it back to duty. Like it wasn't about caring for us and caring for the, sh- the shit that they did to us. It was about getting us fit for full duty and back on the, you know, like back doing our jobs. All right. So for next steps, where do we go from here? that we, we've talked about a lot of the problems. we talked about a lot of the, the, inc- the incredible and harrowing experiences that you've been through. What, what, where do we go from here? I mean, I think we start asking for people to do the research, for the VA and the DOD to do the research, to be able to prove that this is actually a thing. They're not, this isn't like the civilian health system where you can just go in and, you know, figure out how to do the research yourself. Like all of this information is very much guarded. And it's going to take an act of Congress for them to actually open this up and say that they prioritize understanding this epidemic in a different way, because we see a lot of like solutions that are coming out to, you know, like, and we've seen them for five, 10 years that they have all these solutions to the suicide epidemic. And yet the suicide epidemic is getting worse. And so we need to be looking at what are the other like indicators and what are the other factors that we need to be looking at. And this is one of them. And so we have to be asking and banging, banging down the doors to ask for research to be conducted so that we can prove the linkage. Like we know it's there and we can pull all of the anecdotal data, data, uh, evidence that we want, but we need larger um, organizations like the Congress to be asking for this to get done because they're the only people that technically have oversight. Um, and so it's going to be you know, sharing stories about what's happening, but also asking for change. And that means knocking on those doors. So when you say research, are you talking about like a a multi-year longitudinal study here? Or are you talking more aggressive six, 12 month investigation to really dig into this? Uh, We don't have, we don't have three to five years to wait. (laughs) Like we don't, we're going to lose thousands more if we, if we push for research that ends up taking three to five years to complete. Like it needs to happen in a much like faster manner than that, because we don't have time to waste. Like the suicide epidemic is getting worse. And if we, like I said, like if we're really truly looking at different ways that we can approach this, it shouldn't take three to five years. It should be, you know, like an actual investigation that says like in the next six to 12 months, we're going to figure out if this is actually the problem or the root of the problem. We don't have time. Lindsay, I think, you nailed it on the head here. I think the, the experience that you shared with us today, uh, the data that we we are now uh, starting to look at is telling a very unique and dangerous story. And so uh, I, I thank you for everything that you've done for our country and service. 
uh, and especially out of the uniform and what you've been doing as far as advocacy, fighting for this community and fighting to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. So um, I really just want to thank you so much for your time here today. Is there anything else you'd like to share uh, before we jump off? No, just my gratitude for what you're doing. I know it's not a, an easy thing to be calling out such a large institution. And it's, you know, like very much a fearful thing that most of us have that like for myself, like this, is, if it weren't for you, this isn't something that I would be speaking about. I usually just talk about my story of almost taking my own life. I don't actually talk about what contributed to it. So I think I just want to express my gratitude for what you're doing and what you're doing to try to curb what's happening to our community. So Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for joining us again today. Uh, the next few weeks, we're going to have another uh, couple of podcasts coming out, uh, talking with other veteran leaders and other folks who've gone through their own experiences and are experts in this area, uh, looking at suicides, looking at lived experiences, and looking for a path forward to, to make sure that, that, that what's happened in the past it uh, doesn't continue to occur in the future and that we really get a grip on, on what's happening with the suicides in this community and making sure that people are getting out of uniform uh, and are fully empowered and enabled to be successful and be the leaders of this country that we need them to be. So uh, again, thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, we look forward to having you again soon with Mad America Veterans. Thank you again. Take care. Hi, this is James, and I'd just like to thank Derek and Lindsay for that interview, and to say that we have much more veteran-specific content to come, both on maddenamerica.com and on the podcast. Madden America relies on the generous support of our readers and listeners to continue to provide independent journalism that challenges mainstream messages in mental health. Non-profit journalism is not an easy thing to pull off, but we're committed to remaining ad-free and making our content freely accessible to all. We can keep doing what we're doing if you keep on standing with us. Thank you for supporting us. And if you'd like to donate, you can visit maddenamerica.com forward slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.